Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, Miami historian, author, and historic preservationist Arva Moore Parks passed away on May 10th. She was perhaps best known for her critically acclaimed biography of Coral Gables founder George Merrick. Well, he was very visual. He read all the time, and and he would take the vegetables into the city of Miami uh, every day when he was a teenager again, and and he would read books, and he would go from what is now Coral Gables to downtown Miami, which took four hours, and and he read both ways, and he loved Washington Irving's Alhambra. We'll look back at the Everglades News newspaper, One of the articles talks about the legal controversy of whether or not tractors could be driven on public roads. (laughs) And then another gets into the fact that there weren't that many public roads. And we'll discuss the Creek Pocahontas, Millie Francis. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I have often walked down the street before But the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before All at once am I several stories high Knowing I'm on the street where you live The beautifully landscaped streets of Coral Gables are lined with Mediterranean-style buildings that have become a preferred form of Florida architecture. The Miami suburb has become an iconic planned community. Coral Gables was the vision of George Merrick, who in the 1920s transformed his family's citrus grove into a community that included middle-class housing, public parks and trolley transportation, and an educational institution that would become the University of Miami. Arva Moore Parks is author of the book George Merrick, Son of the South Wind. The book won a Florida Book Award and the Charlton Tabot Book Award from the Florida Historical Society. Parks studied with the renowned Florida historian Charlton Tubow. Well, that's one of the great fortune, wonderful times in my life uh, when I was a school teacher and I saw a bulletin on the bulletin board about a free six-hour credit if you applied and worked, and I was accepted, and it was at American Studies, and he was one of the leaders of it. And uh, I did a big major paper, and he said it was the best one he had ever read which I was a history teacher, you know, that's just, no one had ever said that to me before. And I said, do you think I should go to graduate school? And he said, yes, and I'll get you a scholarship and an assistantship, and he did. And the rest is history, so to speak, because he was getting ready to retire, and he was looking for someone else who would be interested in writing local history. And, and so uh, he's the one that encouraged me to do Coconut Grove. And I was the first Miamian Uh, to do really primary research on Miami history. No one had done it previously. They were using secondary sources, you know, and things like that. So he taught me, A, how to do that, and B, then uh, I I went all over and did it. 
Arva Moore Parks worked to preserve Harry S. Truman's Little White House in Key West and the Biltmore Hotel in Miami. She runs the Coral Gables Museum and served as president of History Miami. Her interest in the history of Coral Gables partially comes from the fact that she is a longtime resident of the community. Well, I um, moved into Coral Gables in 1970 and bought an old beat-up house, and everybody thought I was crazy. Uh, and, but Don LeBron, who was special projects person at the time, I had met him at History Miami through Dr. Chabot, and he recruited me to head the first preservation board in South Florida. And as I've joked and said, nobody knew what we were doing, but we began to really look around. So that's when I started learning about Coral Gables big time. And uh, when we worked to save the Merrick house, I got to know Richard Merrick, who was George Merrick's youngest brother. And his wife, Mildred, uh, was a librarian at UM who I'd known for a long time. And uh, about 10 years ago, she said, I have some material no one's ever seen. And uh, that is what prompted the writing of the book, because there were personal letters, notes, note cards, and particularly a group of his short stories. And I recognized immediately that they were eyewitness accounts, because he was 13 when he came here. While writing the book, George Merrick, Son of the Southwind, Arva Moore Parks had access to Merrick's personal papers and documents, as well as people who knew him. Well, I did have Richard share stories with me. One of the things I think I learned from Richard is what George was really like as a human being. Uh, and, and everybody also told me that of all the Merrick children, he and Richard were the most alike. Uh, there was this intellectual streak, an artistic streak, and uh, so I was able to, well, I do feel like I know George Merrick from all the research that I've done, particularly reading uh, so much of what he wrote. In 1899, George Merrick's family moved from Doxbury, Massachusetts to Miami, Florida to participate in the citrus industry. The pioneering spirit of his family helped to inspire the 13-year-old George Merrick. I think the fact that when he got here, everybody had to learn. Uh, his father and mother were both college graduates, and they moved into the back country, into an old homestead, because his father wanted to leave the ministry and raise grapefruit. And George was only 13, and so he did not go back to school, but he worked in the fields to help his father, and he worked with a bunch of the young teenage Bahami, black Bahamians from Coconut Grove who became his very dear friends, his only friends. So. Uh, they became pioneers, but they had a very different background. They were intellectual college graduates in an era when there weren't a lot of those around. As a young man, George Merrick dreamed of transforming his family's land into a beautiful, planned community. He was not a typical developer of Florida land. As Parks explains, he wanted to create an affordable place to live with public infrastructure to benefit residents. Well, he was very visual, and he read all the time, and, and he would take the vegetables into the city of Miami uh, every day when he was a teenager again, and, and he would read books, and he would go from what is now Coral Gables to downtown Miami, which took four hours, and, uh, and he read both ways, and he loved Washington Irving's Alhambra. That's where he got a lot of ideas, and he would look and see the Pineland, and uh, then when he went to New York, uh, his father, wanted him to go to law school. He lived with his uncle Denman Fink, who was his mother's brother, who was an illustrator and artist. So you're getting all this visual. And they began to talk about making a planned community with architectural controls. That's what's really unique about Coral Gables, even to this day. So 
he went around and looked at other planned communities in the north and then he and Denman Fink really and a landscape architect that he met by accident named Frank Button who came down to work for the Deerings and his first cousin George Fink they did the original plan for Coral Gables. George Merrick worked with a team of architects, city planners, and landscapers to make his dream of Coral Gables a reality. Arvamore Parks describes what makes the look of the community unique. Well, I think there are two things. First of all, they have an architectural board, uh, and I'm a little unhappy with them as we speak. They're letting a lot of white boxes in, which bother me, but they've always had that. So you can't build anything in Coral Gables unless you go to the architectural board. And when George proposed that originally, people said nobody will buy, but of course they did. Then the other thing that really makes Coral Gables unique is the landscaping. George planted 30,000 trees. When they started building the glass boxes, we got the Mediterranean ordinance passed in Coral Gables. And what it allows you, if you build with a Mediterranean style new building, uh, you get to go a little taller. So we're getting towers back, and he loved his towers, you know, the Biltmore. And also, if you save a historic building, you can transfer your development rights to get a little taller on what you're building new. So I think in the, that's in the 80s and 90s, I think it was about to go away with the glass boxes, and that got stopped too. So it's, it's been very successful, the values have gone up, and I think people realize that it is the architectural controls probably more than anything else that have kept the feeling in Coral Gables today. The Florida land boom of the 1920s was followed by a bust and then the Great Depression. George Merrick lost his fortune. He was literally thrown out in 1928 because uh, the, the, they had created a city. He was uh, on the commission. Uh, but he was having some health problems, and they threw him off the commission because he missed too many meetings. And he tried to start George Merrick Incorporated, but uh, the Depression had hit then, and uh, he didn't have any money really to invest anymore, and he was losing, you know, property. Things were being foreclosed. So he um, he never got bitter, and I could never figure out why. So it's the, it's the man. The man is a man of great character. And he ended up in 1940 taking the exam for postmaster, and he had the highest score, and he actually became postmaster of Miami. And, uh, and they loved him. The postman loved him because he treated them as equal. The first thing he did was give equal pay to women who were working in the post office department. I mean, he did things that really brief time. Uh, and then the big mural that's in the central courtroom, which it was also the federal courthouse at the time, uh, was done by Dim and Fink. And if you can look at it carefully, you'll see a lot of the Coral Gables history painted into the wall. Merrick never recovered financially. At his death, his estate was valued at less than $400. Arvamore Parks says that despite his losses, Merrick never was bitter. He uh, talked about how proud he was. He did live long enough to have some things they start to come back, and people were starting to say good things about him again. He was almost forgotten there for a few years in the 30s. Um, he also... A lot of people don't realize how important the environment was to him. And he uh, worked really hard for the environment. Uh, he actually was one of the founders of Fairchild Tropical Garden, spoke at the opening, and that made him very happy. So he never stopped pushing both trees in the environment and keeping, he spoke up to keep Coral Gables, keep the ideal, he called it, keep the ideal alive. And that's really probably why we still have Coral Gables.
Coral Gables has had ups and downs over the past century, but overall, Merrick's dream of a landscaped, planned community has been well-preserved. As I've said, I worry a little bit about letting too intrusiveness of some modern architecture. Um, I don't think the architectural board, as we speak, is as strong as it's been in the past. They are appointed by the commission. Uh, the commission, I think, is doing better on under starting to understand this better. Uh, we just can't lose it. We've made it this long. Uh, they've done good at taking care of the entrances and plazas and Venetian pool. In other words, they could stamp it. They're doing really good at restoring that. We have a wonderful preservation department in Coral Gables. We have districts now. We have a Coral Rock thematic district, which is wonderful. So we don't want to lose that overall feeling. And that's what I, at least in my opinion, some of these boxy white things are doing. As passionate as George Merrick was about creating Coral Gables, his first love was writing. It was always his intention to pursue a writing career after his community was established. Arvamore Parks is working to make Merrick's dream to become a published writer a reality. Yes, I hope that, I think the University Press of Florida is interested too, will publish his short stories. Uh, because I realized, first of all, they're good short stories, but secondly, I, I realized they were eyewitness accounts that this little boy, this teenage boy and young man had witnessed and written stories about it, fictionalized them. And sometimes he changed the names, but not even enough I could recognize who he was talking about. And that, I hope, will be my next major project, is to do that for George, it's for George. Arva Moore Parks passed away at her desk at home on May 10th while working on one of her many Miami history projects. She had been living in isolation from the coronavirus with her grandson. She was 81 years old. Arva Moore Parks was an avid historic preservationist, author, and historian, perhaps best known for her award-winning book, George Merrick, Son of the South Wind. People stop and stare they don't bother me For there's nowhere else on earth That I would rather be Let the time go by I won't care if I Can be here On the street Where you This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can find great books on Florida history and culture for your summer reading, binge watch episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. There's a boat race down the river There's a slow boat on my mind Everybody's going like crazy But I'm taking my own sweet time I'll drift down the Big Shark River Take a boat ride on the bay Just trying to find a little peace of mind Down in the Everglades Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Then, at the beginning of the 20th century, agricultural production increased dramatically around Lake Okeechobee, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. And often I think Lake Okeechobee, which is Florida's largest freshwater lake, is forgotten by Floridians and visitors alike who come to Florida, even though it's within almost shouting distance of one of the most densely populated regions in Florida. We hardly think about the impact of the agricultural sector in and around Lake Okeechobee. And that history goes back, as you said, about a century Right around the turn of the 20th century, you saw a marked increase in the level of production in and around the lake. And that's primarily due to Everglades drainage efforts. So at that time, the state of Florida put a lot of effort into draining as much of the lake as they could and exposing the rich soil underneath the lake. It's called muck, essentially, and that's really all it is. It's this really rich, dark black muck, and it's great for growing all kinds of crops. A few in particular are sugarcane, corn, and various types of beans, and those became the cash crops throughout South Florida. And there are a number of large corporations that moved in around that time in the teens and 1920s, bought up enormous tracts of land, and then brought in workers to go ahead and handle those fields. And that's kind of the beginning of settlement around at least the eastern edge of Lake Okeechobee. And again, that goes back to about the turn of the century, but really ramps up in the 1920s and 30s. Ben, you have here a 20th anniversary edition of the Everglades News newspaper published in 1945. Yeah, you're right, Ben. We're looking at the Everglades News, and this is the June 1st, 1945 edition. As you said, it's the 20th anniversary edition, and it's all about the pioneer newspaper for the Everglades region. It says here, serving the vast agricultural section of Lake Okeechobee for 20 years. It was first published in 1924, and it was started by a sugarcane grower himself, a guy named Howard Sharp. And the old saying goes that, you know, to become a town, you need a church, a jail, and a newspaper. (laughs) And this area, this region, these small communities that started popping up in the teens and 20s needed a newspaper, essentially, to chronicle the times, to give national news, state news, and to provide the community with this service. And and Sharp started this, and he called it the Everglades News. The newspaper itself was in print until 1967, so they actually had a fairly long run. And it covered the towns of Belle Glade, of Canal Point, where this was actually published, Pahokee, and some of the other smaller communities that were occupied almost primarily by migrant laborers. So a lot of people who were working these fields came from other places, and they came to Florida usually during the wintertime when other crops up north were not being harvested. So the people that were coming here were not oftentimes living here year-round. So this newspaper was serving that community. Now, this 20th anniversary edition is really fascinating because they do a great job of looking back at the last 20 years and chronicling the history of that community and some of the early developments. On one of the first pages here, they have a page dedicated to all of the headlines from 1930, from January of 1930. Now, this was a weekly paper. It wasn't every day, so every week. So they compiled a lot of information in these. Some of the articles are about early springs on the lake, some of the first people to come and and settle and, and develop these farms. One of the articles talks about the legal controversy of whether or not tractors could be driven on public roads. (laughs) And then another gets into the fact that there weren't that many public roads. So they're talking about the local commissioners trying to lobby the state to build more public roads because, as I said, this was really the breadbasket of the state in a lot of ways. So they were exporting all of these goods out and they needed good, reliable roads. So you see that kind of stuff covered in here. Here's an article for the first school, 1913, they say, is when the first 
public school was actually established in this area in Pahokee. Moving on, we see an article here that talks about the first boatman to carry mail on Lake Okeechobee. His name was H.C. Lloyd. It started in 1915 in a home-built boat traveling up and down these communities delivering mail. As we go through, we'll see some others here that talk about the Seminole Indian conflicts, the Battle of Lake Okeechobee, and some of the remnants and descendants of Seminoles that still lived around the lake. They talk a little bit about the land boom years and people who lost everything in the 1920s and 30s. A little bit more about some of the schools, commercial fishing on the lake. You know, all these really rich articles in this particular edition is just filled with names. So for genealogists, I mean, this is vitally important, especially for a community that was, again, comprised almost primarily of folks who didn't live here year-round. This is a great record of those communities when they were living here in the 1940s and at any other time, 1950s and 1960s. So it's unique to have something like this, and we're fortunate that it still survives today. Ben, the area has continued to change a lot since this paper was published 75 years ago. Yeah, that's right. In in many ways, it has. You know, the demographics, I think, are probably the most apparent shift. You know, so you have large groups of migrant laborers. At the turn of the century, you had a lot of folks from the Caribbean that were living there. Now it's primarily Latinos who are working and living in a lot of these communities. Large groups of African Americans had lived there at different times. In fact, in 1928, during the, the famous 1928 hurricane, wiped out the entire town of Belle Glade. And Zora Neale Hurston, the writer, talked about the African-American communities that were in that area in the 1920s and 1930s. So the demographic shift is probably one of the biggest changes. What hasn't changed is the fact that this still is, in many ways, the breadbasket of our state. Sugarcane production is probably the largest commercial crop. It's almost entirely now large corporations that have taken over the smaller farms, so you don't see that same sort of breakup within the community. Everybody who lives in these communities, almost everyone I should say, either work for these large corporations or have their own smaller operations, but it's all really dedicated still to that rich black muck soil of Lake Okeechobee. These communities are tied directly to the lake. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the special edition of the Everglades News newspaper that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Down in the Everglades. This is Florida Frontiers. Millie Francis was known as the Creek Pocahontas. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. Millie Francis was the daughter of Creek leader Josiah Francis, also known as the Red Stick Prophet. Josiah Francis played a major role in organizing the Creeks to fight back against U.S. aggression, igniting the First Seminole War. In March of 1818, General Andrew Jackson invaded Spanish Florida to forcibly remove Native Americans and their African-American allies. At the time, 15-year-old Millie Francis lived with her father on the Wakola River near Fort San Marcos de Apalachee, located in present-day St. Marks, Florida. That same month, Millie Francis became a celebrity for saving the life of a U.S. soldier named Duncan McCrimmon. Dr. Daniel Murphy is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. He's also the author of several articles and books, including the book Constructing Floridians, Natives and Europeans in the Colonial Floridas, 1513 to 1783. He told me the story of Millie Francis and how she became known as the Creek Pocahontas. She is 
what they would call a mixed blood at the time. We'd call it a Matisse, or we'd call it a Casa background today. So she's growing up in both a Native American world and a European American world. She undoubtedly met a lot of these figures that are kind of prominent in the Creek War and the War of 1812. But her main fame comes from her being labeled as the Creek Pocahontas by many American publications during the first decades of the 19th century. Pocahontas was revered by many European-American settlers for saving the life of Captain John Smith in Virginia in the spring of 1608. In 1818, Millie Francis became a celebrity for very similar reasons. As Jackson's forces were moving down the Apalachicola River and moving south into northern Florida during the First Seminole War, one of the soldiers working on his behalf, Duncan McCrimmon, had some free time one day and decided to go fishing and exploring. And he's just a regular soldier, a, a guy from Georgia, but he gets really lost. And he gets so lost that he moves several miles away from his fort and he encounters two red sticks who are actually spying on the fort on behalf of Josiah Francis's forces back down south in Spanish Florida. These two red sticks take McCrimmon captive, so they plan a ceremony to kill him, to execute him. While this is happening, Millie Francis is playing with some of her friends nearby and she hears the commotions. She goes over to the scene and she intercedes with the two red stick Indians for the life of Duncan McCrimmon. They argue about why she wants to save his life, but she prevailed on them essentially saying, how is one more death going to help us? The two red sticks agree. Duncan McCrimmon's rescue received national attention in the U.S. press. Millie Francis was called the Creek Pocahontas and soon became one of the most famous Native American women in history. A few weeks after Millie Francis saved the life of Duncan McCrimmon, her father, Josiah Francis, was executed by hanging at Fort San Marcos de Apalachee by General Andrew Jackson after being tricked into boarding a U.S. ship falsely flying a British flag. After witnessing her father's death, Millie Francis and other followers of her father were forced to walk to Fort Gadsden at Prospect Bluff. With her father dead and the red sticks decimated, Millie Francis, the celebrated Creek Pocahontas, had no means for survival. Not long after Millie Francis saved his life, Duncan McCrimmon looked for her at Prospect Bluff. Duncan McCrimmon showed up to express his thanks for what she had done for him. Apparently, he gave her some money to help her and her relatives survive. And he apparently also asked if he could marry her. She did take the money, but she refused his offer for marriage. Apparently, she wasn't prepared to do that. In 1836, Millie Francis was among the tens of thousands of Native Americans who were forcibly relocated by the U.S. government and sent on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. Five years later, Lieutenant Colonel Ethan Allen Hitchcock was surprised to find the famous Millie Francis living in poverty along the Arkansas River. Dr. Murphy. She is destitute. The past 20 years had not been kind to her, and the military soldier begins a campaign to try to get some kind of U.S. aid for her. He also asks the U.S. government to give her a Medal of Honor. As anything with the U.S. Congress, these efforts move slowly, and by the time there's any sustained effort to provide money for her or a medal, she's actually passed away. So in many ways, the, the story of Millie Francis ends very sadly. In 1848, Millie Francis died of tuberculosis at the age of 45. The medal she was awarded for saving Duncan McCrimmon's life was equivalent to the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
Today, there's a monument for Millie Francis on the grounds of the San Marcos de Apalachee Historic State Park in St. Marks, Florida. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can join the conversation on Facebook and visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Please continue to stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.